Hoopslab Podcast Episode 11, Gerard Messaros on Unit Testing Patterns. Welcome to the Uppsala podcast. The Uppsala podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Uppsala conference, which takes place in October 2007 in Montreal, Canada. The Uppsala podcast is co-produced with Software Engineering Radio and Dim Sum Thinking. This episode is about unit testing patterns. Our guest is Gerard Misaros, who hosts and presents a tutorial at this year's Uppsala conference. Please welcome our host, Software Engineering Radio's Martin Lippert. So, welcome listeners to our new episode. Um, in this episode, uh, we're going to talk about a tutorial at Uppsala about um, unit testing patterns. And um, the host of the tutorial and the presenter is Gerard Massaros. And um, we have invited him to, to our show today. And uh, I would like to ask you, Gerard, to uh, introduce yourself. Okay. Well, um, I'm a uh, an agile software development coach um, working with Clearstream Consulting in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, I've had, uh, I guess, about 25 years experience in the software development industry, starting with uh, writing telephone switching software and uh, have transitioned to sort of more traditional uh, business IT software in the last uh, 11 or 12 years. We started doing uh, extreme programming and other agile methods in about uh, 2000. And uh, that's where we first encountered writing automated tests using XUnit. In that case, it was JUnit, but we've written them in a number of other variants of the XUnit family as well since then. So, uh, what are you going to talk about uh, at Oopsla? I already mentioned a tutorial about uh, unit testing stuff. Can you can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, sure. Um, my tutorial is on X-unit testing patterns. It's called X-unit test patterns and smells. And the uh, basic idea is that um, tests uh, are great uh, to have, but um, that you really have to be concerned about the maintainability of those tests. And if the tests are constantly breaking, or if the tests are really hard to understand, it takes a lot uh, of energy to both write and maintain those tests. And that will discourage people from continuing to, uh, to write and maintain tests. And the big issue there is that um, unlike production code, which you don't have a choice but to maintain. Tests are optional, and you can always just stop running them and just throw them away, and any investment you've made in writing all those automated tests just goes out the window. So it's really important to focus on writing good quality tests that are robust and repeatable and easy to understand. So the tutorial is about the various kinds of smells that you would encounter while maintaining test code, and the patterns that you can use to avoid them. Um, you also wrote a book about it, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, last three years of my life have been spent uh, writing this book. 
Um, I put off writing it for a while. I was hoping someone else would write it, but uh, after several years, no one had stepped into the void. So finally, I just bit the bullet and started, and it uh, it uh, grew to be a lot bigger than I ever expected. Um, I like to joke that uh, the book is so thick because it's had twice the gestation period of an elephant. <laughs> So what what motivated you to to write the book and to run the tutorial? Well, I work with a lot of different clients um, who are taking up agile methods, and of course, the thing that developers always jump on is the automated unit testing. Um, I often get brought in. Well, it's sort of two models. I either get brought in by enlightened companies to help them start the project off on the right foot, or Companies that are having difficulty, they tried it by themselves and, uh, you know, their project is in trouble, I'll get brought in to help them dig themselves out of the hole. Um, in the latter case, what I often see is that they either don't have very many tests or the tests that they have are consuming an inordinate amount of time to write and maintain. And... Uh, We learned fairly early on in our experience of uh, trying XP when we first started in 2000 that um, you can very easily dig yourself into a big hole by making some wrong decisions about how you go about automating the tests. And the tests can easily take, you know, 70, 80, 90% of your development time, whereas they should be taking 10 or 20% of your development time, and you should be saving that all back by a reduced amount of debugging of your production code. So um, having seen this recurring theme that, you know, everywhere we went, we were looking at all these tests. They were really hard to understand. Um, they, they were just begging for refactoring uh, and cleaning up. We, we said, well, how can we help the community by, um, you know, helping them understand how to do this right the first time rather than uh, creating all these ugly tests and then trying to figure out a way to back away from those tests and, you know, turn them into more maintainable tests. So we started off by um, one of our clients asked us if we could produce a course uh, to present to all their staff. Um, and we did. We created a two-day course on um, the idea of how do you go about doing automated uh, developer testing using, in that case, it was JUnit. And then... Um, The ideas of that course evolved into you know, a more expanded form into the book and in a more condensed form into the tutorial I'm presenting at Uppsala. Why are tests, from your point of view, so crucial? So everybody talks about JUnit, and, and some people use it using uh, unit testing frameworks, and some people are not using them, and some people do test-driven development, some people do not. So what, what is your opinion on why are tests so crucial? Well, the role of tests, and particularly automated unit tests in um, Agile methods, is a means to f both focus the developers on what needs to be done. So it's a, it's part of the discipline that uh, that we apply in Agile methods. As opposed to document-driven methods, the discipline is about writing these huge big documents. In Agile methods, the discipline is around writing the uh, the automated tests. And before you write the code, writing the test gives you a way to reason about what the software should do. So the tests become your requirements spec. They describe what a particular object or class should do for you. 
what its inputs should be, what its outputs should be in response to those inputs, whether it's stateful or stateless and so on. And then once you've written the production code to pass those tests, the tests acting as a definition of what done looks like, then from then on those tests act as a regression test safety net. And the key thing there is in in XP, for example, the mantra is, if you can delete code and no tests fail, great. You just reduce the amount of code to maintain. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are, if you're not sure what the impact of a change will be, rather than, you know, spending hours analyzing the code and trying to figure out what would happen if you made the change, you just make the change and the tests will tell you. The number of tests that fail tells you how big an impact that particular change has. So it leads to a much more interactive, feedback-rich, um, experimental style of writing code rather than a lot of, you know, sitting in the corner, you know, thinking, 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 and hopefully getting all everything sort of into your head. You, you don't have to keep as much in your head while you're working. And it makes software development a lot more enjoyable when you have tests acting as a safety net for you. And at the end, it's, it's about it's about feedback, isn't it? It's all about feedback. The tests are your feedback, um, because every time you uh, you you know save your code, compile it, and run the test, the tests are giving you feedback. Like when I'm um, writing uh, code in Eclipse, I have it set up so every time I press uh, save, uh, it automatically reruns all the tests. So mm-hmm. I get feedback, you know, every. 20 seconds, minute, five minutes at most as I'm typing away, I know exactly what the score is. And especially when you're doing the highly uh, incremental style of test-driven development advocated by you know, people like Kent Beck and Dave Astles and company, they you know, would say, write one test, make the code pass that test, write the next test, etc. So you're constantly just sort of increasing the specification and writing just enough code to pass it. And that also is a form of reverse code coverage because you never write code that you don't need in order to pass a test. One of the big um, gotchas that a lot of people get into uh, is they write a whole bunch of code and then they ask, how do I unit test this? Mm. Trying to retrofit unit testability onto code that you've already written is really hard because that means you have to think about design for testability in the abstract. And, uh, you know, that kind of planning ahead, you know, even if it's 90% successful, the 10% that you didn't think about is going to get you and make it really hard to test. By writing your tests first, the tests uh, force the software you're writing to be testable. So you're thinking about testability before you write the software. And that makes testability of the software just so much easier. And means also that a, you're not coming to the, the situation where you think about, oh, I, I don't have enough time now, uh, let's skip the, the, the automated unit tests um, if you write them before, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and because you have the tests, uh, you tend to spend very little time in debuggers. Um, if you're spending a lot of time in debuggers, that's telling you that you don't have the right unit tests in place because the tests aren't forcing you to write the, 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 the correct software, but rather you're writing a bunch of software and then you're single-stepping through trying to figure out what the software is doing. Well, that's a, a symptom of missing unit tests. If, 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 if we talk about this kind of, of unit testing, it sounds to me um, pretty much like there, there are two different kinds of code. There's a production code that goes into the system and there's the, the unit test code. So are those codes 
different or, or how do you how do you see the the difference between those two kinds of code yeah they're very different um, production code by its very nature needs to handle a whole bunch of different scenarios so it tends to have a lot of conditional logic in it if statements loops switch statements you know lots of dynamic dispatching if you're doing object oriented like domain driven design um, so there's a an essential complexity to production code the difference with test code is that it should be dead simple test code should be completely linear um, because each test should test the system in exactly exactly one path through the system is the way to think about it, right? If the system is in a certain state, whatever the system is, you know, an individual class, for example, and I uh, invoke a certain method on it with a certain set of arguments, I should be able to predict ahead of time exactly what the output should be in terms of, you know, response, return values, updated parameters, etc., and exactly what the afterward state should be. So that's a very linear sequence of statements. There shouldn't be any conditional logic in there um, because the test should test one scenario. You'll have many little tests rather than one big ball of mud, as Brian Foote would call it, which is your production code. But still, there there's some some similarities between those those two kinds of of, of codes, right? Well, the similarity is that. Um, They're both written in the same language, typically, and that's one of the reasons why XUnit is so popular. If you're a Java developer, you develop your tests in uh, in Java and JUnit and so on. Um, and some of the same techniques can be used within the, the software to manage complexity. And some of the same refactorings of the code can be used to transform hard-to-understand code into easier-to-understand code. But, you know... Beyond those similarities, in fact, the, the test code is quite different from the production code. This is part of the challenge for a lot of developers is they're used to engineering highly complicated, convoluted, clever production code to solve tough problems. And uh, they've sort of evolved the simplicity gene out of their heads and, uh, and they will naturally apply the same kind of complexity to the tests. But the problem is you're going to have typically at least as much test code as production code and often several times as much test code as production code. And if you have to put the same kind of effort into understanding the test code as the production code mm -hmm. uh, and the same kind of effort into writing the test code as the production code, you've just doubled or tripled the cost of producing your software. And no one can afford that. I mean, you know, even with the improvement in quality that all this automated testing brings, you really cannot afford to have double or triple the cost of producing the code. It has to come out roughly the same. And that's why the test code has to be kept simple, simple, simple. Right? It's got to be really clean and simple. And that makes writing the code easy and it makes understanding the code easy. And that's what a lot of these patterns are all about is how do you structure the test code in such a way that it's easy to write test after test after test because you've elevated the language of testing from Java or C Sharp or whatever to something more, more like a domain-specific language for testing your particular application. Does it mean that... Um... I should apply similar techniques to, uh, like, like uh, I do apply to my production system, like uh, refactoring code to make it simpler, and trying to find refactorings uh, by by uh, finding code smells and and those those techniques. Absolutely, 
Um, and so the, just like in production code, you can either write clean code to start or you can write messy code, whatever, you know, first make it work and then refactor it to improve the design. And uh, by knowing what the patterns are, you have a better chance of writing clean code to start with but then there's a bunch of test refactorings you can use to get from messy test code to clean, simple, maintainable test code. So there the parallel is complete. It's, uh, it's exactly the same issues with production code. The key difference from an agile developer's perspective, though, is that when you're refactoring production code, you have tests that protect you while you're doing the refactoring. When you're refactoring the tests, you don't have that same protection. So you have to be a little bit more careful when you're doing the refactoring of the test code to make sure that you're not refactoring your test coverage away. Some 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 people um, told me once that um, the tests are the safety net for, for refactoring production code and vice versa, so that the production code is a safety net for, for refactoring the test code. Would, would you agree or disagree? Uh, I agree to a certain extent. Um, the problem with um, that analogy is if I refactor my production code and the tests don't break, I was successful. If I refactor my test code and my tests don't break, that doesn't prove that my tests still work. Because while the goal of the production code is to pass all the tests, the goal of the test code is to catch defects in the production code. So the only way I can really test my tests is to inject known errors into my production code and verify that they are still caught by the tests. And uh, the simplest way to do that is just to, you know, if you suspect a test doesn't work, um, look at whatever it's testing, go into the production code and reverse an if statement or, you know, delete a return statement or an assignment or something like that. And if your tests don't fail, your tests aren't covering that. But that implies going in and changing the production code. Now, you're going to throw the changes away, but it's still the act of going into the production code and deliberately inserting faults into it is how you test the test code When you're refactoring the test code, that could mean that you have to do a lot of fault injection into the production code for it to act as your safety net. That sounds uh, sounds like a nice explanation. Maybe you can do the in injection by some aspect-oriented techniques or whatever, but uh, maybe just a, a very very rough idea. <laughs> maybe goes beyond beyond the topic of our talk right now. Yeah, there is one tool I know of in the in JUnit called Jester, which will do that. It'll automatically go around and and um, you know, flip if statements and so on. And it makes one change per cycle to your production code, runs all the tests and verifies that a test broke. And any ah, cool. changes that it does um, that don't have a broken test, it reports. The problem is it can only, if you, if you do more than one change at a time, you don't know which change caused the, uh, the actual test to break and which changes had no effect. So it's very time consuming to run and it's somewhat time consuming to analyze the output. Um, so uh, I don't know a lot of people who actually go to the trouble of uh, of actually using it in that way. So um, let's let's come back to to the 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 topic of your tutorial about the uh, the testing patterns and and code smells. So uh, I saw that that you call them test smells. Um, so can you can you tell us more about those test smells? Sure. Um, 
Test smells is just uh, taking the idea of code smells that was introduced by uh, Martin Fowler and Kent Beck in Martin's uh, refactoring book and applying it to the concept of test code. And uh, there was a paper at one of the early XP conferences about, you know, introducing the idea of test smells and they introduced a number of these smells that uh, are typically encountered in test code. And I've taken that idea and sort of um, elaborated on it um, and sort of built a catalog of the most common test smells and what to do about them and, and use that as a way to lead people to the right patterns to apply. Uh, the test smells sort of fall into three categories. Um, and by categories, I mean it's around how you discover the smell. So code smells are smells in your test code that a person reading or writing the test code will run into. So a smell is a symptom. It's got to pass what Martin calls the sniff test, which is um, it's got to come and, you know, the smell has to come to you. It's the symptom, not the root cause. So um, as an example of uh, a test code smell would be something I'm sitting there, I'm reading some test code that someone else wrote, and I'm saying, oh my god, I cannot understand this code. This test code is really obscure. So that is an example of a code smell, um, obscure test. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons why the test could be obscure, but the fact that I'm having trouble understanding it is the smell. And that's what's motivating me to think about how I could improve this test code by applying some test patterns to it. The other two categories are behavior smells and project smells. So behavior smell is what happens when you run your tests and something strange happens. Say you run the same test several times in a row and it uh, fails the first time and, and passes the next few times. Well, that's an example of an unrepeatable test or a test that gives different results when you run it. Um, and there's several other behavior smells that are like that. And these uh, infer problems in how your, soft, your test software is written, particularly with respect to how test fixtures are being managed. The third category is project smells, and these are smells that a project manager is likely to see while observing the software development team. And, you know, things like they'll see bugs showing up in production. Well, if you're doing proper test-driven development with lots of automated tests, you shouldn't have bugs in production. So what's the root cause of that? Well, the smell tells you that you need to go look for the root cause. Maybe it's because the developers aren't writing tests. You know, why? Maybe they weren't given enough time or the right training or whatever. So that's an example of a project smell. I, think I assume you have, you have a list of all those project smells and typical project smells, and you will you will um, describe them in more detail in the tutorial? Yeah, um, there's uh, four major project smells, and uh, sort of there's uh, 19, I think, total smells between the, the, the code smells, the behavior smells, and the project smells, and uh, sort of half and half, uh, you know, like... Um, There's an equal number, roughly, of code smells and behavior smells, and then there's these four project smells um, that uh, also come in. And in the tutorial, I uh, introduce uh, these smells sort of more of in a case study kind of format, so we'll run into a bunch of code smells by looking at a test, and one by one we'll go and take each of these code smells and eliminate them by applying a certain pattern. Uh, to eliminate that specific smell. And so then we evolve the test from being a big, ugly, hard-to-maintain test to a much simpler test. Uh, and along the way, have introduced a bunch of different 
test patterns. And then we do something similar in the behavior smells uh, section. We look at uh, uh, what what are the symptoms you know f that you might run into, and what are the the um, the root causes of them, and what are the patterns that you would apply to address those root causes. And those patterns are are called the test patterns, right? Yeah, that's what I call X-unit test patterns. Is these standard ways of structuring your test code, how to manage fixtures, how to do assertions, um, how to make the software testable. Those are my design for testability patterns, things like um, dependency injection and dependency lookup and so on. So it's all organized around certain kinds of problems and what are your choices for addressing them. Mm -hmm. For example, how do you set up a fixture? You can set it up ahead of time, you can set it up at the beginning of the test run, you can set it up at the right at, in each test method or in a shared setup method. So there's four or five different ways of setting up your fixture. Each has advantages, each has disadvantages. The reason they're patterns is because many people have used each of them. And the, the, I use the pattern form to describe them because patterns are a good way to express the knowledge, the things to take into consideration so that people can make an informed choice as opposed to just me standing there and saying, always do it this way. Well, there is no single right answer. It depends on the context in which you're operating. Sometimes you have to use shared fixtures. Shared fixtures have a major issue around them, which is the fact that you end up with a lot of the behavior smells and you can eliminate those behavior smells by always using a fresh fixture, but um, you can't always afford to use a fresh fixture in various circumstances. So there's a trade-off there, and what I try and do in each of the patterns is make the trade-off explicit. What are the indications for using a particular pattern? What are the counterindications? I don't use it in this circumstance, but in this other circumstance it might make sense. And when you are not sure you want to use this one, here's the other patterns that solve the same problem. Uh, and, you know, go take a look at those and see if any of them are more appropriate for your circumstance than this one. Okay, sounds like uh, the, the tutorial and the, and the format of the tutorial is is uh, really practical-oriented, right? Looking at, at, at code examples, looking at how to solve those problems with uh, real-world examples. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, it's all sort of case study based and, uh, you know, we spend, uh, you know, 15 minutes or so talking about uh, a particular problem, showing some code, how to refactor the code. And then we have a, a short paper exercise that the participants do where we give them some code that they and small groups have to look at, identify what are the smells in the code, and then which of the patterns would you apply to fix the problems, and then we have a little group discussion about the ideas that people had, and then we move on to the next topic. So it's fairly sort of fast-paced. Um, we try and keep the audience uh, well involved because uh, they learn a lot more if they're in fully engaged. Yeah, very interactive format. That's nice. So some last questions about Uppsala. Why are you going to Uppsala? Uppsala uh, is a, a very special place for me. Um, I first went to Uppsala in, uh, I think it was 1990 or 91 when I was first learning objects. Uppsala happened to be in Ottawa, which is where I was working at uh, Bell Northern Research. So it was a great opportunity to sort of get a lethal injection of objects and other sort of technically advanced stuff uh, in those days. And 
I've made a lot of friends at Uppsala. I find Uppsala is a really great community. Um, I go there as much for the hallway corridor, uh, um, the hallway conversations or the corridor conversations as I do for the actual program and the, the technical sessions. Um, of course, those are, are really good too. I, I enjoy sitting in and uh, going and listening to experience reports. Um, I find the tutorials really useful. I always learn all sorts of interesting new stuff uh, and keep my, uh, you know, my, my own skill set current by, you know, attending some tutorials that are, are sort of areas that I had, don't have a lot of experience in. Uh, but like I say, I really find that the, the whole community at Uppsala and sort of running into all the people I've met over the years, it's a great way to sort of keep current on things and, uh, and stay in the loop and, uh, you know, make a bunch of new friends and meet a bunch of old friends. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. So why, why should people go to Uppsala? I think it's a great opportunity. Um, one of the things that uh, as technical professionals we need to do is to manage our own careers. Um, you can't count on anyone else to do it for you. Uh, if you don't manage your career, your career will end up being dead-ended uh, or you'll end up going down a path that you uh, will find yourself sort of boxed in at some point. Uppsala is a great way to, first of all, stay aware of what's all out there, what are all the options, what are the different directions you could take your career, and also gives you the stepping stones for actually, once you're sort of aware of what your options are, to actually progress in a specific direction. So I mean, one of the things that I've been uh, getting into in the last couple of years is the whole field of, uh, of usage-centered design, usability, and so on. And going to tutorials on this topic at conferences, I've found to be a very effective way to get myself started, get ideas to apply back on projects that I'm working on uh, you know, day to day. And uh, it's a great way to meet the experts in the field. Uh, Uppsala is uh, renowned for attracting the most um, you know, well-known and, uh, and, and the f true experts in, uh, in a broad range of topics. Um, and uh, these people have all the latest ideas that you can apply to your projects back on the job. Okay, great. Thank you, Gerard very, very much for this interview and uh, our conversation about the X-Unit testing patterns. Uh, was fun talking to you and uh, good luck for your tutorial. And uh, I hope to see you at Uppsala. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you for listening to the Uppsala podcast. If you want to know more about the Uppsala conference or if you want to get additional Uppsala podcast episodes, visit the conference website at uppsala.org. This episode, as well as all the other episodes of the Uppsala podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East. <laughs>